True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again everyone, and welcome to the 11th episode of Season 4 and the 51st episode of the True Crime Fix podcast. Firstly, if you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory, and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. I would like to take this opportunity to welcome Jessica to the True Crime Fix Patreon family. I thank you for your support and I am really grateful for any contributions that you can make during these difficult times. If you would like to join Jessica, then please go over to www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. So I don't usually like saying a lot about my private life on here, but I just need to do this as an explanation as to why this episode is late this week. As most of you are aware by now, me and my wife are expecting our first baby and we are 27 weeks along. Unfortunately, I've had to call an audible this week with this episode due to some very unseen circumstances. Namely, Ashley was involved in a very bad car accident about a week and a half ago and I had to down tools and literally make sure that she was okay. The accident took place when someone pulled out of a side road, ignoring a give-way sign, and she went straight into the side of a Luton van, with her car practically going under it. Ash, as a result, had to spend two nights in Stoke Mandeville Hospital, and it was touch and go for a while with my baby girl. But both of them have survived and are at home resting. Which brings us to the following day's telephone conversation. The person in the bed next to your wife has tested positive for COVID-19. You need to self-isolate for 7 days and your wife for 14. So, as you can imagine, my spare time has been limited over the last couple of weeks and I literally nearly did say to hell with it and not do this show. But I wanted to make sure that I could get an episode out there for everyone who has been so loyal to me throughout this year a year in which I have covered the stories of Sadie Hartley, Hannah Witheridge, David Miller, Shishia Moreau, Stephen Alton Davis, Eva Blanco, Victoria Klimbe, Josh Hansen, Lynn and Megan Russell, Anna Hurd, Stella Domador Kuzma, Gwen Araujo, Eddie Miller, Jaden Parkinson, and who can forget Colin Knox's fitting tribute to his son, Rob? Along with the two horrific attacks in London and Christchurch. Talking of the cases that I have covered this year, 
I had a really nice message from the mum of Jaden Parkinson, whose endorsement of the research that I had done on her daughter's story really pushed me over the finish line for this week. If there are any of you out there listening that want me to cover the story of a loved one, then please just contact me in the usual channels and if I can fit the story into the ethos of the podcast, I'm more than happy to cover it. Anyway, I've taken up far too much of your time, but please stick around at the end for an update about the show's schedule. So as I sit here in my recording studio and it's one degree centigrade, it's fair to say that I am somewhat dreaming of warmer climbs. The location for today's case certainly falls under that category. So without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode has been dedicated to the memory of Louise Jensen. Louise Jensen was born on the 19th of March 1971. She was born to Father Paul and Mother Annette Jensen. She also had a brother, Soren. She grew up in the town of Hutschels in northern Denmark, together with her parents and her younger brother. Hutschels is a town and a seaport at the top end of the Jutland Peninsula. The town of Hutschels has a population of 5,759 people and it is especially known for its fishing and ferry harbours. Hutschall's beaches are piled with the froth of the waves and on the outskirts of the town there are black concrete which used to be German coastal defences of the Second World War and they are now rotting away. When the occupying Germans took over the neighbouring town for their artillery crews after the invasion of Denmark in 1940, those who were thrown out of their homes were given sanctuary by the people of Hutschall's. In the 1960s, an airliner exploded over the Danish coast and many of the bodies fell around the town. The people who lost their lives were laid out in a temporary mortuary in the fish factory in which, ironically, Louise would work many years later. In the 1980s, the townspeople again showed their generosity by finding homes for 800 Vietnamese seamen whose boat had sunk off the coast. It was a place that seemed to understand human tragedy. Karina was one of Louise's closest friends as they grew up together, and she told an English journalist working for The Independent about what it was like growing up. Louise was a happy girl, always trying to cheer up depressed friends, easy to talk to, before often sharing their emotions. They had met at school at the Herring Gym, 10 miles from Hutschels. Louise was good at languages, Spanish, German and English, which she excelled at. She liked poetry. The two girls became very close when they started studying Spanish together. Karina said, I liked her personality because she was so impulsive, funny to be with, she was so warm and just so happy. She made you feel good. The two girls worked part-time for spending money like most teenagers their age did. Louise was a waitress in a burger bar 
Karina in a powdered milk factory run by Nestle. They wanted to travel and in the summer of 1992, aged 21, they both took jobs in a fish factory in Hutschels. It was the worst job we ever had, those terrible smells, but we had a holiday to look forward to, Karina recalled. The first adventure that the girls embarked on was Thailand. I remember the day we arrived in Bangkok, Karina said. All the Thai people kept coming over to us. Louise loved to meet all of these people. She was very personal with them, talking without any shyness. Karina continued, We both had an interest in Buddhism and Hinduism. Louise believed in God. She believed in something. We were talking a bit about religion because I was an atheist at the time. She had this aura about her when she was happy. Louise continued her travels after Thailand throughout 1992. She visited Bali and then New York before returning home. In February 1994, Louise embarked on her next adventure. She was going to be a tour guide for a Danish firm on the island of Cyprus and specifically the tourist location of Ayanapa. Ayanapa is a town on the Greek side of Cyprus. I'm not going to bore you with this, but Cyprus is a country which is split in two, the Greek side and the Turkish side. From 1800 until 1974, Ayanapa was a small village and was home to very few people, mostly fishermen and farmers. Following the Turkish invasion of 1974, however, Refugees from the Famagusta area boosted the population and began to develop the town into the popular tourist centre it is today. By the mid-1980s, Ayanapa had earned itself a name as a hotspot for a younger crowd, with more than 10 nightclubs and over 50 bars. During the 1990s, Ayanapa cemented its reputation with more bars and clubs opening all over the town, which rapidly spread from the centre for several kilometres alongside the stunning unspoilt beaches. Shortly after arriving in Cyprus, Louise wrote to Karina back at home. I quote, At the moment I'm in Cyprus. It's okay, but I don't really know whether it's where I want to be. But it's so nice that I'm having a good time with the other guides. I'm thinking back about the time that we had together in Indonesia and I would really like to work in Japan and then travel again to India, Nepal, Thailand and Indonesia. I feel at home more in these cultures and you know what I mean. And we're going back, we're going to go back, okay? Nothing has been better than our trip. I left my heart in the Eastern culture and religion and food and so on. I have to go back. She did settle in Cyprus, however, and she was enjoying her work at Star Tours. She had met a boy by the name of Michaeli Vasilides, and the two had started dating. Louise's parents had come out to Cyprus in the summer, and she was starting to settle down. 
On Tuesday the 13th of September 1994, Louise had to go to Larnica Airport for a Danish flight departing at 2pm. Once she had finished for the day, she planned to see her boyfriend when he had finished work. Michaeli worked as a barman at a restaurant around the corner from where Louise's flat was and he had arranged to pick her up at about 11.30pm. As with most hospitality jobs, he did not finish on time and it was nearly midnight by the time his motorcycle pulled into the apartment complex where Louise was staying. According to her flatmates, Louise was already slightly pissed off that McKaylee was late and had told them shortly before he arrived, if he's not here in five minutes, she would be going out on her own. When he turned up, he told her that he had not had the opportunity to get fuel for his bike and they would have to make a detour on the way into town. When they stopped at an unmanned surface station, there was only one other vehicle on the forecourt and that was an old style BMC Mini Moke, a vehicle which looks a bit like an open top Jeep. So now for your second history lesson of the day about Cyprus. The island of Cyprus was governed by the Ottoman Empire until 1878. Cyprus was then officially part of the British Empire from 1914 until 1960 when it was granted independence. Part of the independence was that the UK retained a military presence on the island in order to keep a strategic location at the eastern end of the Mediterranean for use as a strategic point for forces to be sent to locations in the Middle East and Asia. One of the locations is one that will be familiar to regular listeners of this podcast, as Lee Rigby was stationed at Decalia. Decalia barracks were approximately 20 kilometres from the centre of Ionapa. The reason that I am explaining this is that the men who were driving the moke were British Michaeli subsequently said that one of the soldiers at the petrol station was looking at him and Louise strangely. The soldiers left first, but when Michaeli later tried to overtake them, the jeep veered into them and knocked them both off their bike. Louise was not used to getting into situations of confrontation and she was dazed and confused and lying on the tarmac. When she saw the jeep reversing after the crash, she said to McKaylee, well, at least they're coming back to apologise. But there was nothing innocent about the return of the jeep. One of the soldiers, a big man, just walked to the back of his vehicle and took out a shovel and swung it at Louise's head. She screamed and screamed and called McKaylee's name, but he ran away into the bushes. The assailants ran after him, but they did not find him. They then loaded Louise's limp body into the back of their vehicle and drove away. Due to the impact on McKaylee's bike, it was now out of action, but he managed to flag down a passing motorist and requested the driver to take him to the local police station. Once getting to the local police station, he reported what he had seen which included the licence plate. As the investigation commenced, McKaylee returned to Ionapa 
and made contact with all of Louise's housemates and work colleagues to see if she had by any chance escaped and been in contact with them. But she had not been in contact. Where was Louise? Two days later though, the worst was confirmed. The police, in a search for Louise, had started combing through all of the disused land on the outskirts of Ayanapa. A farmer working in the fields had seen a sandpit behind the Paralimni police station with part of an arm sticking out of it. Andreas Paniotu stated to the Cyprus Mail, I was going to my fields when I saw something like a body underneath a pile of mud. Upon investigation, it was the naked body of Louise Jensen. She had been laying in 38 degree heat of what is the Cypriot summer and her body was discoloured and badly sunburnt. Louise's body was taken to Larnica Hospital for autopsy. McKaylee was asked to identify Louise. Her body was so badly beaten that he needed to identify her by the jewellery that she had been wearing. Dr Mario Matsakis was the coroner who conducted the autopsy and he told journalists at the Cyprus Mail. The body was naked and battered and there was strong evidence that this was a case of murder. Her death was the result of a number of serious wounds on the head and the neck caused by one or more heavy objects. At that time, he could not either confirm or deny that Louise had been sexually assaulted. He also said one blow had almost split her face in two and her body could only be formally identified fully by dental records despite putting McKaylee through the identification process. And the thing is that the police actually had the suspects in custody already. Three British Army soldiers of the Royal Green Jackets. When police had been alerted to Louise's abduction by McKaylee, they had stopped and arrested the soldiers just over an hour later in the village of Xylophagu, which is between Ayanapa and Dikeya, where the officers were based. Their clothes were covered in blood and a bloody spade was found in the back of their vehicle. The reason why it had taken two days to locate Louise's body was because they had been too drunk to remember where they had left her. Whilst in custody, all three soldiers made handwritten statements to the police in which they blamed each other for the crime. So who were these three suspects? 27-year-old Private Alan Ford was from Sutton Coalfield near Birmingham and he was a soldier with the 1st Battalion of the Royal Green Jackets. A month prior to the killing, Ford had been accused of having smashed a beer glass over the head of a tourist injuring him seriously. 28-year-old private Justin Fowler was from Falmouth in Cornwall. And finally, 24-year-old private Jeff Purnell, who was from Oldbury in the West Midlands. 
and so began a long, drawn-out legal process. The men's estimated £100,000 legal fees were all paid by the Ministry of Defence, whilst the media back in the UK were absolutely destroying the men for being an embarrassment to the country. The Daily Mirror doing a story on the tarnished image of their regiment, the supposedly elite Royal Green Jackets, whose battle honours include the Peninsula War, Waterloo, Sebastopol and Ladysmith. Just over a week after her murder, Louise was repatriated back to Denmark for her funeral. An officer in the British Army wrote a letter to Louise's parents expressing his sorrow, but he didn't make any form of apology. Louise's friend Karina recalled the funeral in an article with the Independent newspaper in 2015. The priest was personal and very angry about what had happened. He used strong words. He said her murder was brutal. He was shocked that people could do this. People were crying, but there was lovely weather and the church was full of flowers. Louise's dad talked to everyone and this touched people very much. He put a letter on Louise's coffin and it was buried with her. Louise's father and mother and her brother Soren, as well as everybody else in attendance, went to see the coffin being put into the ground. There were so many flowers, Louise's favourite flowers were tulips and roses. Paul Jensen also had an act of kindness towards Louise's boyfriend, Michaeli. Aware that the Cypriot youngster was distraught at running away from his daughter's murderers, her father invited him to the funeral. At the funeral, he told Michaeli that he regarded him as a son and that he was right to have run away when Louise was attacked because if he had not done so, he himself would have been killed. Michaeli must never reproach himself for what he did or did not do. The trial commenced in July 1995 at the Devizes Court in the city of Larnaca. Louise's family attended the full trial. It was here that the description of that night got incredibly graphic. This was after one final attempt by the defence to get the case thrown out. They claimed that the arrest of the three officers had been illegally done and also claimed that the jail where the men were being held on remand had intercepted vital private notes to the defence. The Cypriot Supreme Court denied their motion. The trio were said to have spent £150 in a night on alcohol after a massive drinking session at the Yasmin Bar at Ayanapa. Ford was dancing wildly to the jukebox down in whiskey and coke with tequila chasers, while Fowler and Parnell had at least seven pints of ale each in a game called Minesweeping. I had never heard of this, but there are two versions of the same game, so it was either completing a 4x4 chart of shot glasses, in which you take turns to pick at random 
with 12 having water in and 4 having neat vodka. Well, the second version is probably most likely bearing in mind the type of character that we're dealing with. The Rules of Minesweeper version 2 is a drinking game in which it's played in a crowded bar. Players will keep their eyes open for drinks that other patrons have rested on the bar and each player would then shout mine and snatch the drink and drink it as fast as possible. Anyway, after a night of heavy drinking, they took off in Fowler's mini moke. Fowler said that Jeff Parnell had said that he was going to get himself a woman for the night. Alan Ford had then said that this was a good idea. The court then heard how Louise had been knocked off her boyfriend's motorbike by the mini moke. Louise laughed at first, thinking that she was the victim of a practical joke. But then the squaddies leapt out, punching her and hitting her with an army-issue spade before dragging her into the car. Fowler claimed, We drove up a dirt track. Alan and Jeff pulled the woman from the moke. She sat on the edge of the track, crying. Alan ripped open her vest while Jeff pulled her jeans down. Fowler continued. Alan told me that he wanted me to fuck her first. I pulled down my shorts and tried to do as I was told. The situation made it impossible for me. I then stood and went to the moak. In my rear view mirror, I could see Alan on his knees, trying to fuck the woman. After five minutes or so, Jeff swapped places with Alan, then they both stood up. I saw Jeff hit the woman with the spade. I couldn't believe that this was happening, and still can't. It seemed like some kind of crazy nightmare. But Fowler's evidence was shot down by Judge Eliadis, who called him a barefaced liar. He said that the blood on his arms quite clearly showed that Fowler was present when the fatal blow was struck. Ford, who I mentioned earlier, had already been charged with a vicious assault on a British holidaymaker, admitted he rained blows on Louise. He told Cyprus police hours after Louise had died, I was like a man possessed. I didn't feel like I was in my own body. I hit her on the head with the flat side of the spade, just hard enough to knock her unconscious. It didn't work. I hit her again. Somebody grabbed the spade off me and pushed me away. Stunned, I just stared at her face. Then the spade hit her again and again and again. I could not bring my eyes to look away from her. Between them, they bludgeoned her, almost splitting her head in two, with 15 blows with the army-issue spade before dumping her body in a shallow grave. Fowler said, She shouted something in a foreign language. I hit her again, the same as before, and she slumped sideways. I know she wasn't dead because I could still hear her breathing. She looked like she was asleep. Ford and Parnell then told of the macabre scene 
as they began to bury Louise's body. Ford said, Someone threw the spade to me and I used it to dig, but I had to give up. I felt too ill. I kept thinking this was all a drunken nightmare. I cannot describe the fear and guilt I now bear with me for the rest of my life. I am more sorry than you can say, but I know that this will not right a wrong. I will never drink again. Purnell claimed that he had just helped bury the body. Alan started shoveling dirt to cover her up. I kicked some sand from the pile onto her with my feet. I did not try and stop them because I was frightened. The court was told that when the Cypriot police arrested the three soldiers, they were covered in Louise's blood. They were so drunk, it took them an initial 24 hours to remember where they had buried her body, and by this time, she had been found by the farmer. But in one final twist of the nine-month trial, Ford finally named Fowler as the one who struck the fatal blow. Ford said, I saw Fowler raise the spade above his head several times. He did it. He killed her. The horrific fact in this trial was that the men could not be charged with murder because they were judged to be too drunk to have planned the attack. Paul Jensen sat with his head in his hands and his wife Annette wept beside him. Louise's brother Soren could do no more than glare angrily at the three British soldiers. When all of the testimony had been read, the Larnaca court passed sentence on Alan Ford, Justin Fowler and Jeff Parnell, guilty of manslaughter, conspiracy to rape and abduction. All of the defendants sat side by side while Judge Takis Iliadis delivered the verdict to a packed courtroom. Judge Iliadis was quick to dismiss the men's mitigating circumstances that their state of extreme intoxication meant that they were not in control of their actions. He asked what the role of drunkenness was in the crime. He asked whether the men were so drunk that they were incapable of forming the intent to commit the crimes which they did. He said, Even if you accept the highest levels of alcohol, the reply must be in the negative. Judge Iliadis pointed out that in the aftermath of the killing, the soldiers were able to accurately remember many points of detail about the night's events. They remembered that the dirt track on which they parked before the killings was lined by electricity poles and not by earth banks, and that there was a building under construction nearby. Such a memory of details does not point to memory gaps due to drunkenness, Judge Iliadis said. He explained that throughout the proceedings, the three men's actions had demonstrated that they had developed a common intent to assault Louise abduct her with the intention of raping her and caused actual bodily harm to overcome her resistance. 
they acted in a coordinated way within the framework of a common purpose, aiding and abetting one another, he said. We find that the death of the victim was probably the result of the common unlawful purpose of the accused. The judge stated, We have never come across such a detailed, eloquent and hair-raising description of a perimortal death rattle and a perimortal agony. At the conclusion of their ruling, the president of the judges' panel, Takis Eliadis, said, We are satisfied that the prosecution has proved the guilt of each one of the accused on all of the offences, manslaughter, abduction and conspiracy to rape. They were all sentenced to life imprisonment for manslaughter. Following the ruling, Paul Jensen embraced McKaylee, who was clearly carrying some guilt for that day. Nothing can justify what these soldiers did to our daughter and sister, said Powell. We now wish to be left alone to live our life with the good memories of Louise. The family of Louise Jensen revealed that they hoped her killers would perish in prison. Mumanette said, I hope they die behind bars. That would be justice for what they did to Louise. The only thing that helps is that we believe that Louise died quickly. She was definitely dead before they put her in that grave and that helps us to come to terms with it. We've had letters and flowers from complete strangers since she died, many from the families of British servicemen. We have nothing against the British as a whole, just the men responsible. They are animals. Her brother Soren, who was now 18 at the time of the trial, said, When she was killed, Louise was wearing a necklace with a cross which my father gave her here in Cyprus two years ago. We have asked to have it back and now I am finally going to get the cross which I will wear forever. It will be my special memory of Louise. She was so full of life, a very happy girl. She loved everyone and everyone loved her. She was the best. I wish that I could leave it there and say that the men are still in a Cypriot jail somewhere, atoning for what they had done, but unfortunately that's not the case. The trio were released in August 2006 and returned to the United Kingdom after their sentences were reduced on appeal in 1998. Fowler, who is now living in Scotland, found himself in some bother with the local authorities in 2010 when he failed to notify them of his movements. He had been placed under strict rules by the Lothian and Border Police to tell them about his movements under the Sexual Offences Act. Peter travelled to South Africa for a friend's wedding without telling the police after his family had surprised him with air tickets. He was caught when airport staff tipped off officers about him boarding a connecting flight to Amsterdam. And, at the Edinburgh Sheriff's Court, he was fined £500 
for failing to comply with the notification requirements of the Sexual Offences Act. Louise Jensen's grave lies beneath the marble stone at the back of Emmersbach Cemetery in our home of Hutchels. The Danish legend carved upon it simply reads Elska Asorni, loved and missed. So that's it for this episode. Once again, thank you so much for all of your amazing support throughout this year and I hope that I have been able to keep you mildly entertained throughout the last 12 months. I really hope that you and your family have a really safe and enjoyable Christmas holiday. So, just an update for you. I'm going to go on to hiatus for a bit. As we come to the end of our pregnancy, I need to help out a bit more, which means my head being buried in news reports is really not going to be appreciated by the other half and there is only so much writing that I can do between 6 and 8am in the morning. I'll be back on Saturday the 30th of January as I'll be moving to Saturdays from next year purely and simply because I can engage with more of you on the release day which is the highlight of my releases. Please make sure that you follow me on one of the social media platforms for regular updates on the show. On Twitter, it is at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. Also a reminder that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search truecrimefix. Also if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast.com at gmail.com that's true crime fix podcast at gmail.com until next time have a very merry christmas stay safe look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner take care everyone <laughs>